Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Brad Power is a lymphoma cancer survivor. He is trying to accelerate cancer treatment through innovation, and he's building on his experience with process engineering and managing technology. And we're going to find out exactly what that means because today he is sharing his story. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure to be with you. We have spoken many times in the past, and I just appreciate you taking the time again because I know people are really going to benefit from your experience. The way that you approached cancer was so unique. Um, so please take us back to um, the very beginning. You know, what happened? How did you know? So take us back to that, the very beginning of your cancer journey. So I uh, was experiencing extreme belly pain, and I was traveling in California. I was on holiday, on vacation. And after several days of not being able to sleep because the pain was so bad, decided to go to the emergency room. And uh, they did a scan pretty quickly after the description. And the physician came back and he was a very deadpan kind of guy. And he said, "Um, we've done the scan. We think you have lymphoma. And that was the first I'd heard it. I didn't really know what lymphoma was. Um, and it, there were about a hundred things that, you know, belly pain could have been, but lymphoma wasn't on the list. And so, uh, he's kind of looking at me, like expecting me to break down in tears because often when people get, you know, the first, they hear the cancer for the first time, their, their brains go crazy. But, um, I have a very odd personality. I'm uh, sometimes accused of being like Dr. Spock of Star Trek. And so <laughs> I immediately said to him, so what's next? Where do, what do I do? And I'm thinking, okay, so I'm gonna go either to uh, Stanford or UCSF, or I'm gonna go to Mass General or Dana-Farber, because I know enough about the healthcare system that I know that I'm gonna wanna go to a, a specialist, you know, research academic medical center. Anyway, so he was very, you know, like, oh, okay, well, yeah, you could probably do that. You could do that. But anyway, the point was, um, I immediately went into, okay, so what do we do about it mode? So so two quick questions. So when was this? And um, you were vacationing in California, but where did you actually live? Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I live in the Boston area and uh, this was two years ago in sort of July, 2018. And so what did you do next? And oh, and did he actually say the word cancer at all or just lymphoma? I I think, I don't know that he said the word cancer, but you know, obviously I, I, I immediately knew that lymphoma was a cancer. So, I mean, it was, it was the same thing. I was in an emergency situation. This isn't the case with everybody. Often people have time to think about treatment options, get second opinions and all that. But no, I was in an emergency situation, so. And why was that? Can you tell us why? Because I was in extreme pain. <laughs> this was just the worst pain. This was, I, I've had appendicitis. I, you know, like Me too. imagine the worst pain you've ever had. It was, you know, when they ask you that question on a 10 scale, where are you? It was a 10. 
and I'm a I'm a stoic kind of guy, uh, you know, like try to be tough and all that. But no, this was this was unbearable. And like I said, I wasn't sleeping. I could only sleep sitting up, lying down. There were certain positions that were just in, incredibly painful. So I needed to be seen and get treated as fast as possible. And so I decided that I wanted to do it at home. So I wanted to, you know, we, so we aborted our vacation right there, changed our flights. My wife was very uh, amazing, health, amazingly helpful. Um, we kind of aborted what we were doing, flew home, and then it was really, for me, it was Mass General or Dana-Farber. And uh, I had consulted to Dana-Farber and had a good opinion of them. So I chose Dana-Farber, actually approached both. And then it was the first, I, I actually had checked the social network, my professional social network, who's the expert that I would want. Um, but in the end, uh, it was really which oncologist could fit me into their schedule as fast as possible was really right. the deciding criterion. So I ended up at Dana-Farber and being treated by uh, a wonderful oncologist there. What, I mean, what did you do for the pain and how long from the time you got home until you were actually treated and what the, did that even look like? So they wanted to get a biopsy, uh, uh, you know, health institutions, you know, they want to do their own scans. So it was a scan and a biopsy and the biopsy was to figure out how aggressive the cancer was. Um, and it was a little bit, uh, both the scan and the uh, biopsy were a little bit sort of in the middle and they ended up taking a second biopsy and the biopsies aren't ready immediately. Um, so it, I actually ended up delaying for a week the onset of treatment in order for them to process a second biopsy because the scan showed hotspots where there was more cancer activity. What they do is they give you this dye and it registers sugar and sugar processing. And so anything where there's cancer cells lights up. And so there was a place where my oncologist thought that they could go in and get the biopsy because they're going in with like a needle to do an extraction because it was inside my gut hmm. and, and they were going in through my lower back. And so they could, they could go in and get a second biopsy where they thought there would be more active aggressive cancer and then determine whether it was a fast growing or slow growing cancer. So the fast growing is called a B cell uh, lymphoma and the slow growing is called follicular lymphoma or it's called indolent. Anyway, so they were doing that because the, the chemo regimen, which I was sure to get, is different. The, the mix of, of chemo agents is different depending on whether it's aggressive or, or, or indolent and, and how aggressively they would go after it. Uh, was also relevant. Um, Does anyway, this so fall under of, the um, Hodgkin's, non-Hodgkin's category? The non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Okay. So yeah. had it metastasized? No. Okay. All right. Just trying to get some clarity. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I, there's a different staging for lymphomas. Like they typically call stage four and stage four is when it's metastasized. Right. There's a different staging. It's a three staging uh, framework that they use for lymphomas. And I think I was like, 1.5 or two, you know, so I wasn't in the most um, aggressive stage of the disease. Wow. And prior to the belly pain, had you had any other symptoms, you know, signs that your body was just off a little bit in any way? No, no. And again, what, my, what I learned, my oncologist said, I have this slow growing lymphoma. So it could have been developing for decades. 
you know, could have been growing. So it just, it precipitated in this way. And you think that it's um, something, you know, like a trauma, you know, it's like something happened, but it may have been, you know, some combination of genetic and environmental, but it could have been things that happened decades previously. And it was just getting bigger and bigger. The pain was because the, the, and, and it's, this is a, what they call a liquid cancer or a blood cancer. It's not a solid tumor. And so it's diffuse, but there was this thing that was pressing against my organs. Mm. And it was that pressing that was causing the pain, but it would, it had gotten fairly good sized. I appreciate you explaining that because a lot of people think the pain is coming from the cancer, from that tumor itself. And often it's what you just described. It's pressing against other organs and that is what is causing the pain. So, um, so the second biopsy comes back and what is the plan? I mean, what, what, what are they going to do? Yeah. So it was not the aggressive type according to the biopsy, but given the way that my uh, scan had lit up, my oncologist thought, well, we didn't, you know, the, the, the thing about biopsies is they're sampling. You're not looking at all of the tumor cells. You're looking at whatever they get out, out of that sample. And so you could miss it. So my oncologist said, well, in an abundance of caution, I could give you the, the typical protocol for the more slow growing, less aggressive cancer or I could give you the one that's for the more aggressive cancer. I think I'll give you the one for the more aggressive cancer just to be safe. Cause it could be the aggressive one, even though it's not, it hasn't been showing, show, it hasn't shown up on the biopsy. So that's what I got. It's a, it's a formulation called RCHOP. I've since learned that there are lots of people that have heard of it. It's tried and true. It's been around for a couple decades. And the reason that I also learned that doctors like uh, tried and true approaches is that they know what the side effects are and they know how to deal with the side effects. So there's neuropathy or there's constipation or there's diarrhea or there's night sweats or there's, you know, whatever it is, there's, it, it affects your immune system. So you need white blood cell, all of those side effects, which I know, you know, from your, your experience, all those side effects are known and then they have therapies for them. Whereas newer therapies, which might work, they don't know what's going to happen 10 years later. 12 exactly. years later. Yeah. So given that doctors are inherently um, do no harm, the Hippocratic Oath, conservative, they much prefer things where they have uh, much experience in uh, giving them to patients and the side effects. How did you feel as a patient and also how did your wife feel as your spouse about the um, more aggressive therapy versus the um, less aggressive therapy. I mean, did you weigh in on that? Did you think about it before you said yes? No, they were they were both unknown. Like chemo and its side effects were just like an unknown thing. Like I think we, I think everybody knows when people get chemo that they lose their hair. I mean that that again, like with again with your sister and your experience, you you know about all that. I think television um, and film, right, have told yeah. us that's the one thing that happens. Yeah. So you kind of know that, but you don't know. Okay. So I didn't tell part of my story. Um, when I got my diagnosis at this uh, on vacation, coincidentally, it was a, um, a Stanford alumni camp at uh, near Lake Tahoe. And in the... Um, group of campers was one of the people that I'd played basketball with in, in college, who happens to be 
a very senior oncologist at Stanford. So I could bring back my, my report from the emergency room and show it to him. And he said, it looks like lymphoma. And he's look, he looks over the report and he said, okay, here's the deal. Um, as these things go, you're pretty fortunate because we have treatments for your kind of cancer. You're not gonna die. You're gonna be fine. I'll see you in a year. But you're gonna go through the valley of chemo death. You know, it's like, you're gonna, you're gonna have to go through. And so I'm thinking like, okay, I get it. It's like a hip with, or knee replacement. You were know, those like, his words? You're going to go through the... So. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay, keep going. This is fascinating. Yeah. So I, I looked at it like, what's a hip or knee replacement? Again, I'm a stoic macho guy. So like I can go through that and I'll do the therapy and whatever. And I'll go through chemo and come out on the other side in remission. That's, that's what he told me. And so that's what I sort of believed. It's actually more complicated than that. I learned subsequently, but you know, that, that was my mindset going into it. So whether it's RCHOP or bendamustine or, you know, any of the various chemo cocktail combinations, they were all kind of the same to me. Like I'm going to go through some stuff and it's going to be horrible and I'm going to be tired and run down and, you know, yucky and lose my hair and all that stuff, but I'm, I'm tough. So I'm going to go through that and I'll be out, I'll be out on the other side was, was my mentality that was almost set up from the outset as I went through my treatment. So did you begin treatment that fall? And just, you know, again, for, for people learning from this, you know, no one protocol is necessarily the same, you know, and sometimes you even can do oral chemotherapy at home. So, so what did that chemotherapy regimen look like? Yeah, I think it was three week cycles and that I think I had five and it was infusions. Okay. So meaning uh, an IV was placed in and, and they fed uh, this cocktail. Um, and then uh, there's a, a monoclonal antibody called rituxan or rituximab. That's a key thing that it, it depresses um, the B cells, the, the lymphoma cells. So that cocktail was administered by IV once every three weeks for, I think, five weeks running. And this was, again, from July till the end of the year in 2018. So you would go into the clinic for the infusion. Yeah. Okay. And that's why most people get this treatment someplace local, because you have to keep going back again. You know, you're either getting consults or you're getting blood work. So every, every time I would get blood work and the blood work would tell them, you know, how I was doing and they would, you know, they would possibly add other things. You also are getting for the side effects. There's a whole, you know, I had a whole uh, pharmacy of things, uh, as you know, well, and, uh, you know, for, for various symptoms and things I was supposed to take on the schedule. So I had to take notes to make sure that I took everything on the schedule. And on more than one occasion, I caught them, like he said something, but then they didn't have that. They had not given me that drug. And so I said, oh yeah, you said this, but I did, you didn't give it to me in the mm. pharmacy repetition. So, yeah, so I was, you know, tracking that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a steroid in, in that mix as well for one of the side effects anyways. It, so it was all that stuff. So the way I describe it is that I never felt less than 85% of normal. Let's take a break and hear from one of our sponsors. Our new sponsor, Side Effect Support is an online resource for cancer patients, caregivers, and healthcare providers to reduce harmful oral side effects of chemotherapy and radiation. 
created by a registered dental hygienist who has worked in the dental field for 30 years. Side Effect Support offers affordable, over-the-counter, and prescription oral healthcare products that ease the side effects of treatment while also protecting oral health. Go to SideEffectSupport.com. That's SideEffectSupport.com. Get 10% off your first order with the coupon code CANCERU. So the point is, I weathered it unusually well. There are people that die from the chemo and the side oh, effects. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, and I have a, I had a friend um, who had breast cancer and went through chemo. And I told her I was never less than 80, 85%. And she, after her cancer, said, I never feel better than 60%. Mm. I never feel better than 60%. And I practically cried. Um, and again, I realized how lucky I was that I sailed through it. Now, I'm, I'm a, by the way, I'm a super health nut, always have been. I grew up in California. Um, and so I, I eat well, I exercise, I sleep well. Um, during, and this might be a piece of advice for people paying attention to this, when you're having chemo, many um, nutritionists and other doctors and whatever will say, get some comfort food. Go ahead, have that ice cream. You need to keep your weight up. But what I had read was that cancer loves sugar. Mm-hmm. And so I went teetotal. I did not have any alcohol and I love, I love my alcohol. And I did not have any sugar, no refined sugar during the time of chemo because you want to, the chemo is a poison. You're, you're injecting poison into your body and it's stressing the cancer cells, the yeah. stress many cells that grow. And so you don't want to, you want to stress them even more by depriving them of the sugar that they love. Now, I learned subsequently that your liver kind of stands in between, you know, dietary sugar and actually sugar in your blood that would affect them, but we'll put that aside. There are studies that fasting is a good thing to do. They've done it with mice. They haven't really done clinical trials with humans, but fasting is a good thing to do. This intermittent fasting, which is sort of a rage now, is a good thing to do when you're having chemo. I was exercising. I I rode my bike to some appointments and my, my oncologist goes, what? Good for you. It's you're important. Your, you know, you're riding your bike, but I had I was reading uh, voraciously, and there's a guy who I think is formula is N of one, but his story is that he exercised. He pushed himself. He walked the dog. He you know went to the weight room. He was a weightlifting kind of person by background, but the idea of pushing myself to the limit physically for exercise was something else that I did that I think helped me weather the you know, was, I think is why I did as well as I did on the chemo. Yeah, I can see that. And unfortunately, exercise and nutrition are not talked about enough. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't sound like because, because you were in such good shape before, it doesn't sound like you had any underlying medical, medical conditions prior to this, or the fancy term they love to use in medicine, uh, comorbidities, if you will. Um, and of course, if you have if you have other things in addition to the cancer, it, it just complicates everything. It makes things so much worse. But um, to your point, you were healthy to begin with. Um, what were the worst side effects for you and, and how did you deal with them? I have a bit of neuropathy. Uh, neuropathy is sort of... Um lack of feeling in the soles of my feet. Uh, my, my version is minor. I have a, I have a friend, Bryce Olson, who, uh, you know, describes how, how serious his neuropathy is. And a lot of people have it much worse. 
that's the only, I had some night sweats, no big deal. I didn't have constipation or diarrhea or any of those side effects that people have. There, there is one other thing that I would, <clears throat> that I would mention it's related to the intermittent fasting. The way that I thought about it, the, my mental model is that you're putting, the chemo is putting poison in your system and therefore your liver has to process it. And so you don't wanna be overburdening your liver with other processing loads. As you know, alcohol being in that category. Absolutely. That's why people get cirrhosis of the liver because their liver's working overtime to process the alcohol, which is a poison. So uh, I, also the fasting meant that I, was eating like, you know, the, one of these things where you eat eight hours a day, you know, like between noon and 8 PM, let's say. Right. And so I felt that I was giving my liver because it wasn't processing food that I'd eaten, that it would had more capacity to, to work on cleansing out the detoxifying, if you will, the poison from the chemo. And so I, I like to believe that that was also a contributing factor in, in the way that I weathered it. I love that idea. And I do think there's a balance between, you know, fasting, extreme fasting. And I like that you fasted for 16 hours, not for 20 hours or 20, you know, 24 hour fast. Um, and you, you did, you gave your liver a chance to reset. Um, and I just think it's, it's just really important. This aspect of nutrition doesn't get talked about enough and it is poison. I mean, I remember it, it, there was a skull and crossbones on the chemo when they brought it into my sister's hospital room. And I just, I was stunned to see that, even though I knew that's what it was. Yeah. Um, and and the, so the I, nurses that administer it put on hazmat suits. They do. Yeah, they, they do. Um, what was your worst moment in all of this? You know, I actually don't really have a good answer to that. I feel blessed, as I've already described. I weathered it so well relative to what could have been that I mostly just feel uh, lucky uh, to have gotten through it. And looking back on it, I can't remember any worst moments. Oh, wow. What about your best moment? Well, there's something, <laughs> I just went for a scan coincidentally a week ago, I'm a uh, practicer of Zen, you know, Zen Buddhism or the serenity prayer. Oh, I and, love the serenity prayer. Yeah. And so there's stuff I control and stuff I can't control. And like, if stuff happens that I can't control, then stuff's going to happen. But I'm also getting back to Dr. Spock, I'm looking at the probabilities. And for 60 to 80% of people who have my kind of cancer, they're going to respond to the treatment and it's gonna stay in remission. You will die with it, not of it. And there are other cancers like prostate cancer that you know fit that same profile. Slow growing cancers, you don't get rid of them, but you don't uh, die from them. I always figure that I'm gonna be in that 80%, that 60 80%, and that the scan's gonna come back and say, no evidence of disease. And that's what happened last Friday. Um, but kind of flashes kind of going, you know, it could be evidence of disease <laughs> and it could be. And the, again, the kind of cancer I have, if, if it was evidence of disease and it was back and if it was often that's because it's mutated, which it'll do. And then it's the aggressive kind. And then you're in the 20%. 
and it doesn't go so well for the people in the 20%. So people with an aggressive lymphoma, that's not a good diagnosis. And so that's the kind of lurking fear that's in the back of my mind, even though I go into it naively optimistic. I hear that a lot from other survivors, even survivors who are five, six, seven, ten years out. Um, that 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 just getting through that scan and waiting for the results before they can breathe, uh, and just waiting to hear that no evidence of disease. I know a lot has changed for you. Um, so, how is your life different now than it was before your diagnosis? So, my background is as a consultant and process innovation, which is helping companies change the way they do their work in radical ways. And I've been doing that for 35 plus years. Um, And at the time of my diagnosis, I was also writing articles for the Harvard Business Review. And I was kind of an innovation junkie. So I would basically anything that intrigued me, I would go research and then write an article about it and submit it to the Harvard Business Review. And so healthcare is a is an area which was not a focus, but one of the things that I was looking at, because there is a lot of innovation going on in healthcare. Uh, there's a lot of innovation in uh, sequencing, genomics, and associated with that personalization so that you come up with unique solutions for each patient. What happened is that that general uh, activity of mine, I decided to focus on cancer treatment, on cancer treatment innovation. So it's like taking a what, what people in business would call an industry vertical slice of all of that innovation and sort of focusing on that. And the reason for that is uh, a story in its own right, which is I was at a conference. I, I was, as I mentioned, I was a voracious uh, uh, a student of my disease and, and of disease generally. So I was at a conference of the Personalized Medicine Coalition at, at Harvard Medical School. And one of the leading people from Dana-Farber, who was a, a organizer of the conference, stood up and said, uh, we sequence all of our patients at Dana-Farber. And I said, I'm sitting in the audience. And I go, no, you don't because you haven't, I haven't gotten my DNA sequence. So I went up, you know, classic Harvard amphitheater. There's two aisles with microphones. So I go up to the other microphone and I say, with all due respect, I love your institution. I'm being treated there. I'm bald. I, you know, I've got, I'm taking chemo. Um, and I'm sure what you're saying is the intent of leadership, but let me tell you at the front line, it's not happening because I've asked my oncologist five times to get my tumor DNA sequenced and it hasn't happened yet. At the breaks afterwards, people came up to me, about eight different people came up to me and said, wow, thank you very much for sharing. You as a patient have a voice. And and I kind of went, oh, this is like, (laughs) God's telling me this is my calling. I have to do this because I have a voice. I have a standing. I have credibility because I'm a a patient. And you stood up to them. You weren't afraid to stand up and speak the truth. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. There is a little bit more to it because you have to be kind of willing and able to stand up and maybe comfortable enough in being um, articulate about the point of view of a patient. But anyway, it, it did seem like a mission, a purpose, a calling for me to go do that. So that's 
that was the pivotal event that put me on the path of, of uh, making that my focus of my professional work. Oh, gosh. I know that story, but I still love it. It's such a great story. <laughs> um, how has this affected your family? I'm not doing anything differently than I was doing before in that, you know, the pandemic means that we're on, I'm on you know, several Zoom calls per day, but my family is not really affected, though I have roped in my family as uh, co-conspirators, if you will. My son-in-law has been extremely helpful. He's a videographer. And so he's helped me with a podcast that I'm working on, like you, sort of to be released, you know, like later this year or next year, I'm recording some podcasts now. I need to interview you. So he's been extremely helpful to me on, on sort of navigating things like the technology. I can show you that I've got my uh, my light over. Oh, he's, got, he's got the diva light, the diva yeah, ring light. <laughs> and I've got, you know, this is my background. So I'm the, you know, the guy in the main woods, which is authentic. My youngest daughter has helped with uh, a Twitter presence and my um, other daughter was going to help me with some editing of some of the podcasts, uh, but she's been Very tied cool. up with schoolwork. So I'm probably going to get a professional editor rather than using her. But anyway, so I, I have, I have gotten some family help. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. That's, that's great. You're doing amazing things and I am so happy to have you here. Um, what is one thing that you wish you had known at the beginning of your cancer journey? And let's take it back all the way to that ER visit. I don't, I don't have a good answer to that because I've become a student of, of the disease and there's so much to learn. I was very inspired. I spoke to, I have a friend who's uh, Erica Brown, who's found in Colantown, a community for um, people with colorectal cancer. And she introduced me to the mayor of Colantown, who's from... Uh, Eastern Kentucky, somewhere in Appalachia. And um, she is so eloquent about her disease. In the healthcare system, if you don't have a MD after your name, if you're just, just a patient, you are so dismissed by many uh, healthcare professionals. Oh, and that is the call out quote right there. Yes, <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. You have to have initials after your name. Oh my goodness. Right. And, and so, what I didn't know is that even a layperson can become educated about their narrow disease. So basically you're worried about your treatment options. What are the treatment options for my disease? You went through this with your sister. Mm -hmm. um, you can be as educated as somebody, like I was on a pre-med track in college and then kind of blew up on organic chemistry. So dropped it. So I don't, I didn't have four years of biology. I didn't have, you know, four years of residency in MD, but I think I can have a pretty educated conversation with my oncologist now about my disease and my treatment options. And that's what this woman that I um, uh, interviewed uh, was able to do for her colorectal cancer. So the point is what I didn't know then that I know now is that you can educate yourself about your disease sufficiently to be an active participant in your treatment, even though you don't have an MD. Yes, you can. Yes. Yes, absolutely. We are totally on the same page. <laughs> I love it. Um, all right. I love this next question because I don't think I've gotten the same answer yet. Um, 
If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? So I have thought a lot about this. And again, because of my consulting background, I've thought about it systemically. And I think in the same way that Facebook is fundamentally a horrible institution in our society for the most part, because it feeds on outrage and feeds on salaciousness and, and conflict, it's because it's an ad-based model and what bleeds leads. The fundamental problem with our health system is the economic system. And the economic system is pay for service. It's not based on patient outcomes. A, a, a hospital has to worry about being profitable. A pharmaceutical company has to worry about being profitable. An insurance company has to worry about being profitable. And those things conflict with having best outcomes for patients. So I love uh, companies that are both payers and providers like a Kaiser Permanente or a Geisinger. These are systems where the insurance company is incented to do the right thing for the long-term health of the patient, not crank through as many people as possible. I mean, there are horror stories that um, one of my friends, Hannah Mamushka just told me about a hospital where they could, there was a therapy a diagnostic that would make things better for patients, but it would mean that the, the coding for that treatment that was very profitable for the hospital would go away. And as a result, they, they said to this person who wanted to do the better practice, which two people on your staff do you wanna fire? Because that's how much money we're gonna lose by implementing this practice, which is better for patients, but bad for the hospital. Right. So my, my answer would either be single payer, which is what you know Bernie wants and what the Democrats want, which is socialized medicine. You know, that that means that you're not worrying about profitability. If people are on salary instead of having a profit-making practice, it it kind of removes some of this profit-making incentives. Or if you had more. Kaiser Permanentes or Geisingers or Intermountain Health, these companies that are combinations, that would be better. Uh, it's the separation of payment and insurance and hospitals from the what's best for patients, that's the problem. So it's the economic incentives that are the problem. So that's the one thing that I think could put the, we really want everybody in the health system motivated for best patient outcomes. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, um, I was very fortunate to have insurance for my sister through a complete fluke in the California law, which I know you know, because you know my story deeply. Um, but I didn't have insurance for myself. And, and I had some major medical issues that came up in my 20s. And, um, you know, just thousands and thousands of dollars worth of medical bills. Um, but um, I was very fortunate with my sister in that one respect. Um, yeah, it, it's not easy. Um, thank you so much. Are you ready to have some fun with the Thriver Rapid Fire questions? Fire away. All right. Uh, I think I know the answer to this one, but watch me be totally off base. Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Yeah, all good. <laughs> No one said that. 
Uh, what is one word that best describes you? I think consistent with what we've been talking about, I'll just go with Spock. <laughs> okay. Um, before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? I knew that question was coming and I could not come up with something. I was like, okay, wait a minute, something that's my favorite song, something classical, something, <laughs> you know, soothing. So anyway, uh, sorry, can't, uh, no, no, no answer. Okay. How about the last meal you want to eat? I'll just go with lobsters because I'm here in Maine. Okay. Uh, the last person you want to see? Well, I, I have to give credit to my wife, so I'll, I'll, I'll throw it there. But it, it was, it was I, I did think about this one with wife and kids, so immediate family. And the last words you will speak? Have a good time. <laughs> and aside from Cancer U, what is one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? I spent a lot of time thinking about that one because I, there's something I would recommend for everyone else, which is find a focused social network community for your disease. So if you have lymphoma, as I do, it's the you know, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society or the, the Lymphoma Foundation. But then I had to be honest with myself. I actually don't, I would not call them my number one source. They are one of a number of sources and I don't have a number one source. I mean, I thought about different media. I listen to podcasts, I go to conferences, I read books, I read articles, I get a lot of newsletters, none of them stands out. So um, because I've been a student of, of my disease and of cancer generally, I would just say it's a lot of stuff from a lot of different sources. I don't have a one, unfortunately. And by the way, I asked the same question on my podcast as well. So. Oh, you do? Oh, that's awesome. Well, tell people, one, how they can get in touch with you, and two, a little bit about what you're doing. So there, there's one main activity, but it's got three prongs, maybe even four. So I've got a website, which I offer to people, which is Reengineering Cancer Treatment. And it's my compendium of everything that I've tried to do to help people with their, I don't know, some people don't like this term, cancer journey, um, but that's that's my term for it. Um, and it's meant to be a shopper's guide to services, mostly web-based services that help people with the various jobs to be done of getting a cancer diagnosis, whether that's finding people, finding doctors, uh, getting uh, health tests, uh, assembling your data, getting a second opinion. It's those kinds of, I call them jobs to be done. And it provides certain names of services that provide uh, those uh, answers to those jobs to be done. I'm working on a podcast, as I mentioned, okay. to be released. Um, the working title is Cancer Hackers. Ooh, and I like we're that. also working on launching a uh, community of the same name and same focus where the arc is, again, you would be a perfect candidate, uh, people who solve something for themselves and then made it available to others. Um, so it's, it's, it's based on the notion of end user innovation. Hmm. Um, but that's, that's the podcast and the community. And um, I'm also recently named the chairman of a startup that's trying to help people get access to novel cancer therapies called my cancer db D db like DB database database yes. okay very cool it's wow. a technology services uh company wow congratulations thank you
Very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, it's an honor to be associated with you since, as you said, I've followed your story and I'm very uh, inspired by all the work that you do as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories.